0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So our Gospel and Old Testament readings this week are apocalyptic, which is a prophetic style of biblical literature. We often read it and think of it in terms of predicting, but strictly speaking, it's less about predicting and more about revealing something. That's why the last book of the New Testament, that we typically call Revelation, can also be called the Apocalypse of St. John, which I think we can all agree is a much better title for that book. Um, But we didn't read from John's Apocalypse this morning. We read from some of Daniel's. Daniel's book in the Old Testament shows us what it looked like for the people of God to live in exile under the rule of another empire. Now, the first half of the book contains some familiar stories of lions, dens, and fiery furnaces. But the later sections record Daniel's apocalyptic visions. And our reading from chapter 12 that we read this morning begins with this phrase, at that time, referring to the events of chapter 11. And the vision from chapter 11 was not about end-of-the-world events, but about what felt very much like end-of-the-world events that took place in the time between the Old and New Testaments. Because from the time of Israel's exile on, there were a series of kings ruling over and oppressing them. And one king, Antiochus, was particularly awful to the people of Israel. Now, while some emperors allowed the Jewish people to maintain their religious practices, Antiochus forced them to apostatize, forced them to abandon their religious ways, slaughtered many of them. This is the kind of thing that's revealed in Daniel 11. And so while Daniel 12, like a lot of biblical apocalyptic literature, might be also about judgment at the end of history, we can read it in light of very historical events. And so Daniel 12 starts off answering a very understandable question underneath. So under this persecution, there are people who abandoned true faith, traitors to Yahweh, who compromised with pagan rulers and false religion, who were then able to live. And when the dust settles and persecution ends, there's this awkward silence when both faithful and unfaithful survivors are left. So the question is, will there be justice? Will there be a sort of Nuremberg-like trial to discover who was and who was not a faithful, righteous Israelite? How do we sort out the evils that were done that didn't get dealt with? Which is another way of asking, is God just? Will the faithful who endured persecution receive a reward? Will those who apostatized get their reward? Now, Daniel 12 answers that question in the affirmative. God is just. Some awake to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. As Russell Crowe said in the movie Gladiator, what we do in life echoes into eternity. That quote, of course, echoed through youth groups for the next 10 years as overzealous youth pastors seized the opportunity to be relevant and quote blockbuster movies to teenagers. But alas, I digress about my profession. Jesus's apocalyptic language, though, like Daniel's, should also be understood in terms of God's justice on unfaithful people. So in Mark's gospel, when Jesus talks about the rumors of wars and earthquakes and nations rising against nation, it happens in the context of the destruction of the temple. It starts off with his disciples saying, look at these magnificent buildings. And Jesus says, it's all going to be destroyed. And then they ask, when are these things going to happen? Now, there's a debate over whether Jesus is referring strictly to temple destruction or to the final judgment or both after all of the wars and earthquakes and things, he talks about how people will be handed over and required to answer for their faith. But we don't have to necessarily read apocalyptic texts as these one-for-one predictions, looking for the exact fulfillment of every last earthquake and blood moon, as if Jesus were some sort of soothsaying Nostradamus type. There will be no timelines or names and historical dates for you this morning. But we ought to read Jesus's words with his intent in mind. And Jesus gives us the clue as to what, or the reason why he's saying what he says, so his disciples wouldn't be led astray, nor alarmed and confused. Jesus tells them to look beyond the events to the promise of God's control and what comes afterward. He uses this language of birth pains. Now, it's very precarious for a man to stand up and talk about birthing imagery in scripture, because it risks incurring the very righteous ire of all the mothers in the room who have actually experienced labor. So I won't go on at length, but I do want to add this one note. That unless something goes tragically wrong, birth pains are not death pains. And so whatever fulfillment comes out of what Jesus is saying, it can't be the end of the world. It must be the beginning of something. Typically, we don't have any sort of destruction or death in a birth scenario. And so whatever Jesus is talking about, the toil, the turmoil, must be leading to something greater. And that's why I think he uses that imagery. Because as the persecution comes, as people are delivered over by parents and children, we have to imagine what Jesus is saying is, this is something that will birth something more beautiful yet. Jesus' intent isn't to leave clues so that we can map everything out. It's to warn his disciples that these cataclysmic things will happen, but not to worry, something better is coming. I think the things that tempted the Jews of Daniel's day, those of Jesus's day, and the church in centuries after in their own persecution was to respond to distress with capitulation. I think all these eras are marked with powerful rulers demanding that God's people give up their identity, give up faithfulness for security and peace. Just, just quit doing the sacrifices. Give up your covenant faithfulness and you can live. Just put an eagle on the temple and you can do whatever you want. Simply declare Caesar as Lord, offer your pinch of incense, that's all it takes, and then you can enjoy the Pax Romana. We would all do well to think through the ways in which comfort, security, and power still entice us to unfaithfulness even now. So Jesus' intent is to prepare his disciples for what was coming and encourage them to be faithful. Don't think that these wars derail the kingdom. Don't think that nations rising up against each other is somehow outside of the control of God. This will all happen, and it has to happen, so be faithful amidst the calamity. Don't follow the false messiahs who offer you their own promises for glory. God is still in control, and justice is on the other side, and the one who endures will be saved. And if the sermon ended here, it would be a good exhortation and utterly bad news. Because in light of how Jesus taught us to live, in light of the rest of the sermon on the mount that we hear after the Beatitudes, we're found wanting We simply don't cut it. And if the sermon that can be boiled down to try harder because the stakes are high, that might scare a few of us into action, motivated by judgment. But the fulfillment of the commandments, loving God and loving others, that doesn't spring out of fear. Our sin is still a problem. Now, when the writer of Hebrews was working through the problem of sin, he or she, we don't know who it was, writes that in the sacrificial system, day after day, the priest has to offer sacrifices again and again, which were ultimately unable to properly deal with sins. But Jesus' sacrifice, as the faithful priest and faithful human, covers what could not have been covered. What the writer says is that Jesus' perfect sacrifice was done once and will never need to be done again. Sins have been forgiven. Sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. And that feels a little bit fuzzy to us because of course we recognize our own sin, but they even account for the already but not yetness of the Christian life. For by one sacrifice, He has made perfect forever those who are being sanctified or who are being made holy. God has made perfect those who are still in the process of being made perfect. There's no need to worry that you don't match up with the kind of perfection that Jesus lays out for us in his teaching. He literally says, you must be perfect. You may not yet be the kind of person who will be faithful in the time of trial, but you are on your way. And in God's eyes, you are already faithful. Not because of your own goodness, but because he says their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. I think it's valuable, whatever you think of the novel, the the novel Silence. I haven't watched the movie yet. But the the character, Kichijiro, I believe, is the name. I probably ruined the pronunciation. But his place of wrestling with his unfaithfulness and despairing that he could have been faithful were it not for the persecution. I think that is such a relatable character because I think many of us who live in comfort and security wonder, although we'd love to think we would be the type to, like Perpetua the martyr in her story, would grab the sword of the gladiator and thrust it into our own side because his hand is, you know, quivering. We'd love to think that we're awesome like that, but we're probably not. And so we live with a little bit of anxiety about that. I think reflecting on that and then reflecting on the perfection of Christ's sacrifice and his grace that goes before it and goes before us and goes where we are unwilling to go, I think that's a valuable place for us to meditate. And I think the problem isn't just God's law. We live in an era of rampant fundamentalism in which everyone is subject to the law of every individual's sense of justice and then tried in the court of public opinion. If we are tempted to think that God is capricious and eager to jump on every last indiscretion and punish it beyond the fullest extent of the law, it's because we've made him in our own image. In and out of the church, we hunt down heretics and condemn them on a moment's notice. Even our supposed allies in whatever ideological wars we're fighting are simply one wrong opinion away from being consigned to our ever-growing list of enemies. We listen for keywords and phrases that either tell us that our neighbor is one of us or one of them. And if you are one of them, we can't shake the dust off our shoes quickly enough. And while our contemporary unwritten laws say, prove to me that you're righteous, show me that you're faithful or I will cast you out, Jesus chose to be faithful because we couldn't be. It isn't that God no longer takes sin seriously, that he says, well, I wasn't actually that angry after all. It's that God took it so seriously that when humanity was found incapable of following through to atone for itself, he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 10 isn't the first place this priestly imagery comes up. It goes on for chapters and chapters of just the insufficiency of humanity to be able to atone for itself and the necessity of Christ's sacrifice. It's why some of the minute theological distinctions fought over in the 16th century about what happens at the Eucharist are at least worth considering. Because when we approach the table, the priest is not, I'll go out on a limb here, is not standing in the place of Jesus to offer a new sacrifice for our sins. We go and receive and participate in the grace of God that he's already given us, but the sins have been dealt with if you'll forgive a little bit more snarkiness from me, as if you haven't endured enough already, the only answer to the question that is honest, to the question, when were you saved, should be, well, historians aren't entirely sure about the exact year, but it was definitely Passover weekend, sometime between AD 30 and 33. That's when we were saved. Everything that happens afterwards is our participation in a one-time historical event that accomplished something. Plenty of moments in the service are specific moments to reflect and think about the forgiveness of sins, confession and absolution at the Eucharist, the comfortable words. There's lots of opportunities for us to reflect and meditate and perhaps in some sort of personal way receive something from God in that moment, receive some actual grace. But don't mistake the declaration that you are forgiven with the reality. The reality already exists for all who are in Christ, perhaps even mysteriously since the beginning of time. The words from the priest are descriptive words. So then what of all the exhortations to faithfulness? What of Jesus' call to remain steadfast? Of course, we are still called to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Of course, we want to be as faithful as possible. The writer of Hebrews goes on after the section we read this morning to talk pretty vividly about judgment, about judgment for those who know God and still choose to reject him. The forgiveness of sins isn't a license to sin all the more. And the forgiveness of sins certainly isn't a license to avoid reconciliation with each other. So we can say, I don't need to apologize to you. God's already forgiven it. But the order of things matters. You cannot do anything to make God love you more because God is love, and he can't possibly love you more than he already does. And you can't do anything to appease God to merit forgiveness because God has already wiped your sins away. In light of that, the writer to Hebrews says, cling to the hope you have before you hold on to jesus hold fast to your confession and then i love how eugene peterson translates verse 24 he says let us let's see how inventive we can be in encouraging love and helping out be encouraged by one another and care for each other and receive grace from god so lavishly given let it overflow into love for one another and to those who have yet to know that gift of grace when Hebrews talks about let us keep on meeting together, it's not because we have to come get our wine and bicky, as we sometimes jokingly call it. It's not for the sake of you need to do this thing in order to be right with God. It's let's not forget to meet together so that we can spur one another on to love. And when we see evil in this world, we can be comforted in knowing that God is just. Sin will be dealt with. But when we imagine how God is going to dole out that justice, how sin will be dealt with, Remember that God's plan for dealing with the unfaithful is stretching out his arms out on the cross. That Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us all. Hebrews has this incredible visual picture of the curtain being his torn flesh. May we celebrate the freedom we have in Christ and spur one another into living into our role as citizens of the new kingdom that is to come, that is coming, despite what the world may appear to be, despite all signs that seem to be to the contrary, that kingdom is coming. And may Christ's faithfulness strengthen us to live more and more into our own faithfulness that is growing, because he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Thanks be to God. Amen.